You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Andrew Kumasaka was a psychiatrist in practice for over 30 years. His first novel is All Gone Awry. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to see you after all these years. (laughs) You know, one of the things that struck me immediately about this book was it's set in Santa Cruz. I think you do a really good job of describing Santa Cruz. But I think one of the things you do that's really important is the way you approach Santa Cruz is to make it feel not like the book is being written necessarily by someone who's lived here forever, but rather somebody who just knows it well. You have, uh, Mm. I guess, a a certain distance between um, the writing and the location. So talk about creating the place you live for people who haven't lived here in a sense like as a put casting yourself in the third person as somebody who came here and got to know it well mm-hmm. <clears throat> well <clears throat> of course the backstory is that is that uh, Alex the protagonist <clears throat> the one who becomes a um, an art history professor is from San Jose and uh, his longtime partner uh, Lisa is from uh, Western Pennsylvania, so they're they're outsiders. They're far enough outside, and so they didn't grow up here. They didn't grow up surfing or anything like that. But they come here for a particular reason, and they established a relationship and career there. So I think that that helps to get a little bit of a distance. Um, but um, but uh, but the real experiences of people who come in and discover paradise. <laughs> <laughs> and don't take it for granted. You know, that's an that's a really interesting approach because I I really do think that Santa Cruz seems to have be an ideal in so many ways, especially as we hurtle towards uh a time when, you know, the environment and the climate itself is changing. Santa Cruz seems to be less vulnerable to that. Talk mm-hmm. about just appreciating the place where you live no matter where it might be. <clears throat> well, you know, my <clears throat> my wife and I came to Santa Cruz shortly after we were married, and that was kind of our plan because it was halfway between our respective families. But uh, in Los Angeles, for some reason, we never had any kind of natural disasters. And, and our friends up here said, yeah, nothing bad ever happens here. And as soon as we got here, the rains of, 50, uh, of uh, 82 happened, it just devastated, you know, the city and, of course, the San Lorenzo Valley and Love Creek and everything like that. And then later fires came and even medflies came, you know. So um, uh, it was full of surprises, put it that way, and we kind of liked it that way. <laughs> now, uh, you're, you have a really interesting uh, approach in this book. You're a character, uh, Alex Arai. He's an art history professor. And I think one of the things that gives you is uh, the opportunity to talk about art history. And and the way you do so is really interesting. In science fiction novels, they have something called the info dump, which I think is something science fiction writers use 
to convey like the the interesting science that's behind the fiction. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and if it's done right, it's a really amazing technique that allows uh, the science fiction writer to explore all sorts of stuff and create a certain tension in the story because we want to find out more. I think you have a similar approach with mm-hmm. art history in this book. And you must have researched quite a bit of art history to find the, <laughs> the good parts. Talk <clears throat> about um, choosing to make your main character an art histor- a historian and an mm-hmm. art historian, and then doing the kind of background research in order to make okay. the character seem real. Did you... Uh, pre-select the things that you wanted to learn or did you just go out and learn a whole bunch of stuff and then (laughs) cherry pick what you wanted as you wrote? Mm -hmm. Well, I was one of those kids who always loved to draw. So I drew pictures all the time. And uh, my first two books were two books on dinosaurs, two two volumes with uh, inscriptions but no text. And then, of course, I started writing poetry and, 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 and kind of went out kind of went on from there <clears throat> but um, um, as far as um, putting that together is concerned uh, in college two of my favorite classes uh, were the history of modern western painting and the history of modern western sculpture and they were delivered by this incredible professor who had a wonderful style and he also happened to be one of the world's experts in the French sculptor Auguste Rodin so anyway, so I, I got a good foundation from him. And uh, I tried to keep up over the years through, you know, medical training and all that kind of stuff too. But I thought that when, once I retired, I'd be able to kind of catch up uh, with postmodern developments and then, and then kind of go from there. So, so what happened was, is that as far as the origin story is concerned, as far, uh, as, far as the book is concerned, uh, I, was, uh, I had taken a break from another book that I was writing, one that you might have been familiar with. I thought this character came coming to mind. She was a, a Hapa girl. She was half Japanese, half half uh, white, and uh, she would be a painter, and she'd be a student painter, and and she would probably like to swim, and um, and uh, she would she would be a person who suppressed her traumatic past uh, in order to live in the moment. And it was only through her art that her traumatic past would come through. So I thought to myself, I, I need I needed a foil for her. So I came up with a Japanese-American art history professor who is a person who was um, obsessed about his past to the point where he couldn't really live authentically in the present. So I thought that they could play off of each other. And as it turned out, as I pursued these uh, various storylines, his was a storyline that kind of took over. Uh, Wow, that's really interesting because what's, what's interesting to hear is all the superstructure of your creative process that goes into the story but is not ever apparent in the story. We're just caught up in the story, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting and well told. Um, one of the things I, I really liked about this book was that more all the time through this book, I was, re- I was reminded of the things that you can do in literature that you just can't do in any other form to provide pleasure to the reader. And, and there are a couple of scenes in this book where the characters are interacting, and, and <clears throat> particularly the professor and the girl. And we know that there's going to be some, we sense that there's going to be some interest between them. 
but they both have partners. They're different partners. Yes. And, and mm -hmm. one of the things I really loved about this book was there's a scene where they're talking, and we can see them that they're moving towards each other, but they're, the partners are in the way, and we can intuit as readers yeah. two separate paths that are happening in each the characters and measure the way that those paths that we can see play off of one another. Talk about creating those kind of prose effects where you're anticipating how the reader's going to feel about the characters, how the characters feel about themselves, and how those lines will converge. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, Alex, the protagonist, again, is a person who is somewhat ar arrested in his development, uh, most, mostly because his major conflict is with his father, who is a narcissistic sculptor. But it also in includes his relationships to women. He has a hard time. He has a hard time committing completely to a woman, uh, although he has his longtime partner uh, in 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 Lisa. So, uh, so anyway, so what I really wanted to do was to almost compare and contrast the two types of relationships because, at the time that Alex and Lisa talk about their relationship in first person, uh, what's happening currently is that. Whitney and Mario are having a relationship, and they are essentially the same age. So it was a way to compare and contrast relationships from back then and, and the relationships from right now. Well, I thought you did a really great job at that. It was really fun to, I think, another thing that's easier to do in prose yeah. than it is in any other medium is to chop up your timeline rather than telling your story just sequentially from beginning to end to mm -hmm. chop it up and drop in the past into the the what's going on in the novel's current time period so at when you wrote these different parts of because i love the parts with lisa and alex kind of getting together and, and living different lives talk about did you write those parts in advance like in work out the sequence in the past before you and then dropping the pieces written pieces into the present or did you kind of like develop that organically as you went before <clears throat> writing the novel okay i i tend to be a um what's called i guess is, is a pl planner as opposed a, a, a plotter as opposed outliner as opposed to a, a pantser so actually before <laughs> so i don't do the seat of the pants very well so anyway i wrote a complete uh, synopsis of the book before i even started writing it okay but the actual process of writing is you know you, you is, is that i have a kind of an outline and so i figure that you know something should be happening here and, it's, and you know what Lisa should say something about her relationship. And so she just does, organically does. And then something else happens later on, and, and then you see uh, Whitney and Mario kind of going at it. So it, it was kind of an organic, it, it was kind of, it was organic. It, there was structure involved, but enough organicity to allow for something to come in because it just felt right now for her voice to come in. That's a great way of doing that. I've never, I mean, I've talked to lots of writers, and they tend to be as you put it, either pantsers or outliners. And I yeah. don't think I've ever heard of anybody who combined it in the way you do, but that seems like a really smart <laughs> smart way to keep yourself out of trouble, but also yeah. allow your own inner uh, chaotic agent to, to get its way. <clears throat> and one of the things, too, this book is really about art, uh, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. and, 
and yet it is also itself a work of art. So there's lots of, uh, for the reader, we, the reading process is, at least in my humble opinion, <laughs> that, that it's an artistic collaboration between the reader and the writer. Right. The writer gives us all the writing, which is 99% of the work, but as a reader, we experience a novel something like a movie. So, it, you know, you're essentially the kind of the screenwriter and we're the directors of the of the movie in our own little tiny mm -hmm. brain. Mm, that's a nice way to look at it, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think, though, that as a writer, you're very canny about that. We, You are writing about the creation of art as we readers are creating the art based on what you're writing about. There's kind of like a... Uh, a bootstrapping uh, effect there. So talk about <clears throat> writing about art in a work of art. Mm -hmm. and, and, then, and, and, then, and then having the uh, audience uh, or the reader extrapolate from that, you mean? Exactly. Yeah, I think what it was, one of the biggest challenges was to somehow balance the storytelling with a certain amount of information I needed to have you know, that dump there to be able to really explore some other more intellectual kinds of uh, ki ki kinds of uh, concepts and everything like that. So, so I think uh, what, what I, what, what I try to do is um, I, I try to find ways that it would naturally occur. Like for instance, a lecture, a, a radio show, a paper that the person wrote, and if I could strategically put it in there, it wouldn't be too much. Yeah. Uh, and then now, so for then, so then, so what? What I'm, what I'm hoping for is that I'm starting at almost first principles for a lot of people. You know, talking about modern art. What is modern art? You know, what's postmodern art? You know, how do you how do you give people the the uh, vocabulary to talk about these kinds of things or to think about them. So I, tr I try to get them in there kind of early so that later they can start forming their own opinions and, th and then go from there. Uh, that's, that's kind of how I do it, yeah. Well, I think that, that that's a remarkably <laughs> articulate way uh, of telling us how, what, what you're doing. Now, let, let's kind of ratchet back and get kind of an idea of the setup of the book. We have... Um, Alex and Lisa, uh, he's an art history professor. Uh, she works in, in the high-tech world. And, and the other kind of couple are Mario and Whitney. She's, she's a very headstrong and immersed in her own artistic vision painter. And he is a, a, a very strong character and a, and a bit, on you know the the macho side of the equation, uh, fellow, he, he's a writer, <clears throat> but he's also just kind of a, more of a regular guy. He's not so much mm -hmm. immersed in his artwork as <clears throat> are uh, both mm -hmm. um, Alex and uh, Whitney. So talk about creating those characters and. and the, those around them and architecting just, you know, kind of the general structure of the book. <clears throat> yeah, in, in creating those characters, uh, again, first of all, I did want to <clears throat> have Alex and, um, and Whitney uh, seen as, as foils for each other, but because developmentally they're similar, they can engage in certain kinds of ways that maybe somebody who was more mature in terms of Alex's 
development would react in, in, in a much kind of a different way. Okay, so anyway, so I really wanted a, a woman in, um, in Whitney who was, I don't know, I don't know what you can call it, different, different but familiar in a certain kind of a way. And I wanted her to have a certain feeling about men in her life. And then so Mario then, who, you know, I think he's very engaged in journalism, but I mean, he, he, he's a person who's kind of controlling, and, and so he's the exact kind of wrong person to be with someone like Whitney. So I think all the time when I put the, together these characters, I try to find people who are opposites, because the opposites can lead to uh, a, a lot of conflict, and, um, and who knows what else it is going to lead to. So, yeah, so... I constructed um, Alex and Lisa to be very different people, and Mario and um, and, and and Whitney to be as well, and 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 kind of then try to see what would happen. Yeah, it's really that's that works out really well. It's fascinating. <laughs> One of the things about this book is I think it's very much page turning and plot driven, and, and that's hard to achieve. Uh, and, with a book that doesn't involve, you know, these days, gunfire superheroes, the supernatural, dystopia, yeah. etc. <laughs> yeah. All of those are happily absent from this, <laughs> except for the dystopia we currently live in, but that's another matter entirely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things I think, uh, talk about um, Alex's relationship with his father, because I think that that's really <clears throat> interesting and well, you use this as an opportunity too to talk about, um, you know, the the history of Asian Americans in America, which is just sad and filled with reprehensible conduct on the part of the government and, and much of the population. But talk about Kazuo uh, and, and Orion and and his his part in the novel and his path in in in, mm-hmm. in Alex's life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. The short version of his name would, would would be Kaz normally. So I just call him no Kaz. Kaz. So so Kaz was just a child when he went into the internment, but he was always a special kind of a kid. You know, he he was artistic and he was bright and he was uh, pampered. And so, a lot of people who are very narcissistic have that kind of a background. So he's presented as a real narcissistic person who doesn't look at other people with empathy. He looks at other people as objects to, to satisfy a certain type of satisfaction, a need for him. So um, so along comes uh, Henry, the older son, and Henry works really well because he's going to be an engineer, so he can help fabricate the uh, sculptures and stuff like this. And then you've got this, this kid, uh, the youngest kid, Alex, who he thinks he's going to go help his dad by breaking into his studio and, 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 write, and, and drawing his own little things in there. <clears throat> so um, so uh, in any case, um, the narcissism is just overpowering it. It just, it's soul-sucking. It's, I mean, to, to imagine to be the son of somebody who doesn't even see you as a human being. And so what, what Alex is trying to do in some ways is to overcome his father. His father is a practitioner of art. He makes art right. He doesn't teach it. I mean, that's the whole thing. You know, I, I'm, I make art. You're the student. You're, you're a good writer. Just write about it. That's all we need. <clears throat> so uh, it, what, what, what Alex is doing, I think consciously, 
but but maybe unconsciously, is that he's trying to to jump over uh, Kaz in terms of the art hierarchy because really, who is in charge of that? It's not the artist. It's the critics and, and it's uh, the gallery owners and it's the professors. They're the ones who say, oh, here we have, we have abstract expressionism now and, and this is how, what it's made of. And, and, and the public who doesn't know anything about any of this go, you know, that's right. Clement Greenberg has a point there. Oh yeah, Jackson Pollock, wow. You know, and then, so in other words, it's, it's a very interesting thing, who has the power here? Mm-hmm. You know, in the family, Kaz has the power. But in terms of the profession, really, you know, Alex has more power than his father does. Although he capitulates to his father by, by doing the kinds of things that further the father's uh, career. So, um, yeah, so anyway, it is a story about uh, a, a person who, my gosh, he's a tenured professor who's still under the sway of his father. Um, you know, I, I think you made reference that Alex is not very developed. And, and, and I think that my impression is that, mm-hmm. that there are certain kinds of men who um, they reach the age of 18 or so, where they're uh-huh. still pretty much adolescent. Yeah. And then from 18 to 85 or so, they exist in, in a quantum state. Either they're adolescent kids or trying or they're old men <laughs> or happy <laughs> and pissed off at everybody yeah. and, and i think that uh like kaz and, and alex both are in a sense good examples of that kind of quantum existence you know it's like schrodinger's cat when you talk to somebody you never know are they 18 or is he 85 today exactly <laughs> yeah so, no, that's a very interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. What's happening inside there? Yeah, I think so. That's a very interesting way of looking at it, like sort of quantum leap. And I think somewhere along the well, actually, I know somewhere along the line, um, uh, Alex, who's not particularly psychologically minded, understands that you know we've done the same thing. You know, we've used our people to accomplish certain things, and I'm, and I'm sorry, even though you can't quite hear this. <laughs> so, in other words, uh, Alex is not a narcissist to the extent that his father is, but he has narcissistic needs that are stronger than most. He need, a narcissist needs to get what we call mirroring. Mm-hmm. They need the world to mirror back their greatness and their goodness. You know, they, they need, and they're very vulnerable to that. And they're very vulnerable to slights and things like that. But Kaz is full-blown. Uh, he has no empathy for people. He sees people as self, what we call self-objects. And I can just imagine you know, how terrible it is to live under, under, under those circumstances. A person in my writing group once asked, once told me, she, I think she nudged me in the shoulder and she said, your father must have been pretty terrible too, wasn't he? <laughs> and I go, well, you know, to tell you the truth, my dad was nowhere like Cass. He, he was a wonderful guy. And, you know, he could have made life miserable on us because he, he, did, he did a lot of great things. But he was a sweet man. And I never felt like I was under the sway of this powerful man who was going to destroy me or use me somehow. Well, I, I think that's an, an interesting comment because I think... Um, the most powerful images we create are those we truly create based on, on our knowledge. Now, you have, as 30 years in a psychiatrist, you have a heck of a lot more insight into human motivations, what happens inside the tiny brains of humans. And I'd like you to just talk about, 
using that knowledge in a way that doesn't, did you ever think about, you know, compromising your patients? Or, 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 I mean, because I imagine that you, the knowledge that of human interior thought that you display in the novel is highly informed by 30 years of being a psychiatrist. <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> well, uh, yeah, there, there's no, nobody uh, I've ever worked with <clears throat> who will say, oh my gosh, that's me. Oh, I imagine not. But there's, and, and, you know, and I think there's one character, uh, Joey, who is patterned after someone I, I, I knew. Uh, but uh, and, and uh, he introduces Alex to graffiti, and he grew up in Bernal Heights in San Francisco, and he had a tough life. But that being said, being a being a therapist, yeah, I was a psychiatrist for longer than thirty years, but I was in private practice for thirty years. But I really felt that when people came to me, uh, it, it was like they were giving me the um, the manuscript of their lives, the manuscript of their lives, and they were coming in at various plot points where they were in terrible distress. And it was up to me to use my training and experience and, and empathy to understand this story. And, and if I could, and, and it often was the case, they trusted me to, to come in there, into their stories, into their lives. And together, we collaborated around um, the material to try to make that narrative uh, more positive. So, so what I say is that I, I learned a lot from my clients. Uh, I didn't reproduce m my client or anything, but I'm pretty sure that if I create a client and it feels real to me, I think that person's real. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, that that's so fascinating because what you just talked about is I think the essence of both humanity and storytelling, which is that we are stories. We are. If I ask you who you are, you're going to tell me a story. Yeah. And I think that the idea of narrative is so powerfully in, in planted in humans that we see everything as narrative. So I'd like you to to talk about, you know, using the the narratives of life to inform the narratives of storytelling, <clears throat> and how um, you can, in terms of when you want to help somebody. You have to. You can look at what they need as, you know, uh, an editor for the story. This part of your story, it, you're not doing yourself any <laughs> favors with the decisions you're making in this part of your story. Change mm -hmm. that character over a little bit. Have them do this. Well, a lot of times, um, you know, when you get when when you get presented this manuscript, you know, you realize this is a you know memoir, autobiography. This is. A, this is fact. This is fiction. You know, there are different kinds of psychotherapy. One is called cognitive behavioral therapy, where people really um, see themselves in terms of their narrative as a very negative thing. They feel like bad people, or they feel like broken people, or they feel like whatever it is. And you want to challenge things in certain kinds of ways. That if you can honestly change that narrative and say, you know, that I'm not a bad person because of whatever reason, or I have an option here that I'm not powerless. That's what I mean about changing the narrative. We're not trying to trick anybody, you know, like, you know, I did a horrible thing and now I'm a really good guy. Um, but um, it, it's all in the emphasis, you know, and, um, and uh, it's very important, that narrative. We all, you're right, we all have a narrative of who we are and, um, 
and there can be some honest things that can be done that can improve that narrative, which then leads to actually a better life. You know, I, I was fascinated by your view of art history in this book. Yeah, I, something I know not very much about. Mm-hmm. And you talk about modernism, postmodernism. And I think one of the things that, that inter- interested me was the way that the history of art also maps to the history, you know, uh, as it laid out. So talk about the history of art and the history of our country and how they mirror one another, in particular because as we, you do dig into the history of the family and they were taken away as part of, as, you know, part of our shameful World War II hit heritage. Talk about uh, creating that mirror between the art world and the historical world. My knowledge of history goes back maybe not that long, but I'm aware of what's called uh, pre-modernism, modernism, and and post-modernism. And and the part that I like the most is modernism, which is roughly between the 1860s to, 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 to the 1960s. And this is the time where um, there was that great, uh, again, narrative, a progressive narrative that uh, actually white culture, Western European culture was uh, far superior to everything else. It was going to take over everything. And then because we believed in science and, uh, and, and, and logic, that we would always work towards something better, that, that um, history was uh, progressive in nature. We were all working through to, to some kind of... Um, to some kind of a, um, utopian end. But uh, World War II, uh, and World War II played a big part, World War I played a big part too, but World War II showed the fallacy of this, uh, and it showed human beings at, at their worst with the Holocaust. And people said, gee, you know, that, that thing that was being used to show, promote, you know, uh, Aryan supremacy and this and that, we have to rethink that again, you know. So at, at, at one point with, with the Holocaust, people saw, saw the, the idea of the victim as something that was really profound, that, you know, you could suffer tremendously by virtue of this narrative that we had. But in the 1960s, what happened was, um, what was the progressive narrative of, well, we won World War II and, and all this, um, gave way to the trauma narrative. Ever since the 60s, our narratives are about grievances and victimhood. We've become a nation that's made up of victims and aggrieved people. And the sad part of this is because there are so many people who have been victimized for, say, 400 years or whatever. But when you look at the memorials then, which is the part of the art, you find that memorials are about trauma narratives. You see... You see that chevron of uh, Maya Lin's um, Vietnam War uh, memorial, and you go, what is this? Is this positive? Is this negative? As a postmodern work, you put yourself into that, and you say, you say one or the other, you know? And what do we have now? We have inverted fountains in New York City where the World Trade Center went down. We have, um, I think we have benches over there at uh, Oklahoma City where that horrible thing happened. We have a lot of things that really focus on what's called the trauma narrative. And so so when you ask about art and you ask about the history of the country, of course they come together. They come together. They come together to the point where 
modernism is, is really no longer the thing that people really hold on to because of the failures of, of modernism. Postmodernism is made up of each individual person, and each individual person has the right to say whatever she or he thinks, and you cannot challenge that. You cannot challenge that. And, and so in some ways, postmodernism is a very fuzzy place where you don't know what the truth is, if there is such a thing as the truth anymore, because it's not arranged around a, a positive narrative of, we kicked ass in World War II, for example. But then again, if you take it farther, then you say that the people who um, are making these memorials or who see themselves as victims, to be a victim is a very, is, is a horrible thing. It's at least defragmentation of the self. If you think of the self, the thing that makes us know who we are day after day, that if we wake up in the morning, we go, yeah, I'm the same guy. You, you could represent that as a circle. And this circle goes from states of fragmentation to cohesion. And so you, you could see the world as, as uh, divided into the, the forces that lead to fragmentation and, that, and, and what leads to um, cohesion. To be a victim and to go through some horrible, terrible things that people have gone through is so traumatic. Anyway, but it, it, it leads to fragmentation of the self. And uh, it, it's hard, hard to live your life when you feel like you're in little pieces. And this is how we speak about it metaphorically. I broke up into little pieces. It, that, that's what you were talking about metaphorically, is that sense of self. And, and likewise, when we say we pulled it together, we got it together again, it means we, we, we put that t together in, in, in terms of ourself. But I think the interesting thing that's happening, and I, I haven't really read about it too much, is that that identity of being a victim, which was so fragmenting, is becoming a source of strength for some people. They wake up every morning and they say, I am a victim. And, 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 and X, Y, and Z follows that. So it's a very interesting, and, and, then it, and again, I'm no, I'm no um, expert in cancel culture or anything like that, but it, it almost feels like sometimes to me that the victims are now the, the oppressors. Okay, that's a very controversial thing, and, and you know what? I take it back, but, but, but there are times that I feel that way. So this whole thing about victimization, you know, that defines the soul of this country is very, is very distressing. You know, that is so trenchant and so powerful, and that's one of the things I like about this book is that it has these undercurrents running through it through the stories of the characters we read about uh, Alex and, and and Whitney and and Mario and, and Lisa mm -hmm. and, and we feel these tugs going each way and i think that that is the power of fiction mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> because in order to process that we have to take in the language and read. It's a very internalized experience. It's not like a bunch of people staring at a screen and going ha ha or oh my god or blubbering in tears. Yeah. It, it's something that you have to make an effort to do. And because you make the effort to do it, it's more powerful than the other forms of art in my purview. Now, one of the things about art especially in creating it, is it's an interior experience. And I think one of the things you do very well is to explore that. And we see, and you do a great job at showing, not telling, about the flow state. 
that people have to get in to to do art. And this happens because uh, Alex, he's who a guy who has repressed his artistic instinct for most of his life because he's been told by his father that he's no good, shouldn't even bother, <laughs> forget that. He finds himself exploring art through tagging and graffiti. And I think this is really fascinating to me yeah. because, as you point out, in many places, uh, graffiti is illegal. So talk about that internal flow state, finding expression in a, a really rebellious manner. I mean, graffiti is really a serious form of rebellion. Many people think of it, not without reason, as, you know, a kind of an, an attack almost. Well, you're right. I mean, there's that dichotomy. Uh, graffiti as vandalism, graffiti as art. And to me, there's no problem because they're both. It's both. It's, it's, it is vandalism and, 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 it, and it is art. But the uh, vandalism also, <clears throat> I mean, the things that are vandalized are perhaps things that need to be vandalized, need to be broken up and fragmented in the same way our psyches mm -hmm. are. Well, it's a subversive art, you know, and it, it is a really an anarchist, in its pure form, <clears throat> an anarchist statement against society and, 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 the, and the people with the money because you, you, you can't own graffiti, okay? So it, it's a strike, it's an artistic blow against the people who run the country and who are rich and who, who own everything. And so, and so, and so they do, so they do this thing, and uh, so it's an anarchist in in uh, um, in, in uh, spirit. But at the same time, all it takes is for a critic to say, "Oh, you know, this guy Jean-Michel Basquiat, you know, who was a street artist who wrote Samo, 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 or Keith Haring, who who did something special about the background of subway station." Um, posters we're going to make them famous in a way to the point where this this thing which is an anarchist has an anarchist spirit is really going into the portfolios of the rich because 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 the the most expensive uh, piece of artwork in the world i think was done by da vinci and it's worth 400 million dollars there's a, an abstract expressionism, expressionist named Willem de Kooning, and his sold for $300 million. There's a Jackson Pollock for 200 and something. There's a Rothko for 200 and something. There are people who, I don't know if they like the art or not. I don't even know if they hang it up. It's an investment for them. It's an investment to get rich. So there is this power dynamic where the doggone artist who gives her his soul uh, to the art hands over this thing which is vastly expensive and 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 powerful to those people who are already powerful and rich now but wasn't a, a basquiat uh was like a, something done on, done on cardboard i think a couple of years oh. ago that was <clears throat> sold for more than anything before it you know po possibly so possibly so so here's a young fellow who He's not strictly a graffiti writer, but he's doing some things on the street. And, and I don't know, I think he had a special relationship with, um, with Herring, but he's in the right place at the right time. And mm. all of a sudden, this, this young man 
uh, is well is so, so highly sought after. I think they even give it a name like neo-expressionism. I'm not sure for you know. I'm not sure. And then he's in galleries, and he's on T-shirts now, and he's dead now. But um, in, you know, so much of it is just serendipity in a way. You know, you happen to be there and you do something, and and somebody with power, and this is a critic usually, says this is important. And the gallery owners get it. And the public, who doesn't know anything, says, I own a Bas Basquiat. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, I, as a writer, you clearly experienced the flow state. Yeah. I talk about transforming your inner, your own understanding of the flow state in terms of creating, you know, typing this out or however you write. Do you handwrite or type? Well, you know, for the longest time, <clears throat> I, I wrote longhand because I felt that the act of writing was a very physical thing and that the Im in images and things came right through my hand. Mm. But Well, I, also I, art. Yeah, and art does too, and I always like to... But, but uh, eventually, uh, eventually, no, I sw switched over to a laptop and it was not a problem, and it, it really, really surprised me. Uh, but when you talk about the flow, I have to admit to you that... <clears throat> You know, I have, I have a nice little office at home. It's got a nice little desk. And, um, and I would prefer to work there. Mm -hmm. Okay, but we have this uh, border collie that we love. Her name is Maybe. And she likes to go wherever I go. And she wants to interact and get petted. And she knows exactly when it's time for lunch. And, and I can't write under those circumstances. So what I want to say is that most of that book was written in the backseat of a car. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'll get to the flow in a second. So what I would do is I, you know, I'd say goodbye to maybe. I get in, get in the car, I drive to some place, and then I get in the back seat and I set up, and then I'd sketch out a scene like, okay, it's gonna happen here because that's what my outline says. Okay, these people are gonna be there. This is what they're gonna talk about. Okay, this is the imagery. This is what the light's gonna be like. This is what the sky is gonna say, and then I put it aside, and then I go off for a three mile run. And I run, and all this stuff is turning in my head. And then I get back, get in the backseat of my car, open up, open, open up the laptop, and it kind of writes itself to a certain extent. And that's the flow that you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes it's wonderful, and it's almost, and you don't even change it hardly. And sometimes it's just hard work, and sometimes you rewrite it 30 times to make it sound like you're in the flow. Yeah. And, and you, I have to ask, when you're, writing it, whether it's hard work or not, how much, how aware of what you are doing are, are you? I mean, uh, are you just someplace else when you're writing and your hands and brain are typing out the words, but, but you don't, so that when you go back and reread it, you go, wow, did I write this? How the hell did I think that out? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think what it is is that when it's working well, um, you know, you're, 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 you're tapping away, and, um, and a convergence happens. I mean, it's, creativity is a convergence. It's, that's what a metaphor is. It's two things that no one ever thought were connected that are suddenly connected, and all of a sudden it connects in your head, and you find in yourself you're writing a metaphor, for example. And then you really like it, so you extend it too much, and so you cut it up. But but the point is, is that yeah, you're not in charge of that. 
it presents itself. It just it just happens, and you go, you know, I really like that. I really like that scene, and um, or I really like the way you describe that thing there, and I'll, I'll forget it and come back to it later. But there is a strange. It, it's a different state of being when you're in that flow. Yeah, it's just, and sometimes things just just come out and it comes out almost verbatim and, and, and you keep it because you really, really, really are in the flow. Uh, yeah, yeah. You must have had to teach yourself a, a bit about uh, doing graffiti. How, how do you research something that's illegal? The province of, of, of youth who can get around maybe better than you can. Yeah. And, 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 you know, is, is, you know, potentially dangerous and illegal. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Okay, no, really, um, good things always happen to me when I, when I go to Bill's Wheels Skate Shop on the east side of Santa Cruz. I'm just putting that out for Bill. But, um, okay, so early on I go, man, I got to meet some graffiti writers. So I went to Bill's, and I talked to the kid there at the register, and he goes, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, Mongo and Torch are going to be there. They're, they're painting. And I go, oh, really? And they said, yeah, go talk to them. They're cool. So I go, and I talk to them, and they're the most generous guys. Uh, Mongo's a guy from um, Bernal Heights, south of the Mission District, and he told me his history. And Torch uh, first wrote Under the Hemisphere or something in Queens, and here they were, a guy from Queens, a guy from New York, and a guy from San Francisco with a passion for, for graffiti. And I watched them. They let me watch them. And I saw how they created these things. And they showed me their black books. And they showed me, you know, all the things that inspired them. And, and, and so, so that was good. And then another time I came, and uh, they said, um, oh, yeah, come, come tomorrow. Tits Crew is going to be there. And I go, Tits Crew? He go, yeah, time is too short. Time is too short. I said, okay, I can use that. Okay, so, so I went there, and they're another wonderful bunch of guys, you know, and they're, they're showing me how they did this, and I saw how they, how they did it. Okay, so finally I said, okay, I have to learn. I have to learn how to, to, to do graffiti. So there's a, um, a graffiti art gallery in San Francisco called 1AM, so Mongo said, yeah, you, well, you, you think that's because we stay up late? And I said, yeah. And he goes, no, that stands for the First Amendment. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I wrote to them and said, well, I mean, I understand you have classes. And they said, yes, yes. Nate One, who is a legendary graffiti writer, is teaching a class. And I said, okay, uh, well, I'd like to sign up. They don't know who the heck I am, right? So they said, man, we can't wait to see you, Andy. You're going to have a dope time. So, so I asked my sons, what, what does dope mean? Is it good? And he goes, yeah, it's good. But they said, you can't do this, Dad. You're too old. You're going to go there, and they're going to think you're disrespecting them. You're going to make a fool out of yourself. You're way too old to take a graffiti writing class. I said, look, you know what? I don't care. So I That's showed, the right attitude. Yeah. So I showed up to San, Franci San Francisco to 1 a.m., you know, and Nate One is there, and he's really a nice guy. And these young teenagers are there, and... You know, I'm and I'm so much older than them. I almost feel like I should hide my hair. And so what it, it turns out is that I'm, you know, since I drew dinosaurs when I was really little, you know, mm -hmm. I'm 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 fairly good at designing things. But what they told me was, Andy, you're you're very good about designing things, but your man, your hand control sucks. <laughs> okay, <laughs> because when we went out 
to, to do it, you know, because we did we had did a little wall that's sanctioned because because it's a part of one AM is sanctioned. And these young kids, you know, their bodies move in such a way that they are one with the wall and the spray is beautiful. And me, I'm sitting there thinking, just like in this book, okay, 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 press 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 the thing. Oh no, you pressed too hard. Oh no, oh no, it's just and it was like, you know, so they built this so they did this beautiful mural, all these guys with this one crappy little tag in the corner. <laughs> and that's how I learned. I mean, it's not how I learned, but it's I learned how hard it was, and I learned that there's talent involved and that you have to practice and you can't just walk up and pick up a spray can and do something like this unless it's very crude. So I took I took I took a lesson. I took a lesson. Yeah, I took a lesson. You know, the way you describe it in the book, I just realized that it's it has a lot of similar similarities to the way you write in that they will have sketchbooks of what they want to do in miniature and then go and recreate it, which is exactly what you did as a writer. So it's interesting to see the artistic line, you know, moves through from writing through graffiti. I mean, from stuff that was done around primeval campfires, storytelling, yes, to the here in the twenty first century with <clears throat> spray cans and walls, you're still they're still storytelling, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are. That's a good point. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, they do. Yeah. Now, um, having finished this novel, uh, this is yeah. really a beautiful novel. I yeah. think it can do well. Um, first, have you has your agent tried to? put this out as to be made into a movie? Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it, it is finished now. And um, we, we're having a little bit of a supply chain problem here. And as soon as I get one, I'm going to sign it and get, get, give it to you. But no, it is complete. It, it, it is finished. And, you know, early on I thought, I think this would make a good film. I, I yeah. think so too. Yeah, so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm reaching out to people who are, um, a, well, directors or set designers or people who might know people in the industry, particularly people who are looking for Asian-themed uh, properties. Well, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, you'll have to excuse me, but one of the things I thought about this book is, um, well, last year my son and his uh, fiance stayed with us to learn about, you know, whether they wanted to live here or on the East yeah, Coast. right. And while they were staying with us, they noticed, you know, Mom and Dad, you watch a lot of Hallmark movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so my son said, well, you know, they have a structure in these Hallmark movies. It's, you know, they meet and they, and then at one point in the narrative, they go into the cave. And then when they're apart and everything's dark, and then at the very end of the book, they, the story, they come out of the cave. And as I was reading this book, I was thinking, oh, my God. These characters are gonna go into the caves. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, you this hey this make a damn good Hallmark. Although <laughs> <laughs> okay. you know the, the sentiments in it are true, but it, it has the you know the right elements. <laughs> well, if Excuse you have any connections me. to Hallmark, please let me know. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, the structure, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, your next book, are you working on it already? <clears throat> okay, so what it is, that first book that I put aside mm -hmm. to write this one, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, fi it's finished. Yeah. Oh. 
<clears throat> it's finished. But as you might recall, it was a book that I could never release while I was in practice. Ah, okay, yeah. right. Okay, so, and it's way too long, and I'm going to have to go through the same exercise of <clears throat> providing a good storyline with some information because... Um, because, okay, so basically what happened was back in 90-something, I said, hmm, I think I have time enough to just write two novels. Okay, okay, so one's going to be about love, and one's going to be about death. Okay, I'll start out with love. Okay, so, so I thought, okay, well, I'll just write about everything I know about romantic love. I'll, it'll be like a textbook. And then I said, well, that's no fun. I'll, I'll, I'll write a novel. And so it's about that. So the problem with this is that even though you can have a good storyline, since one of the characters is a psychiatrist, there's there's so much uh, theoretical stuff written about how why and how people fall in love and fall out of love. Mm -hmm. So how do I incorporate again a certain amount of information without ruining the story? Mm. So that's what I'm going to have to do. So in other words, it's written, but it's way too long, and I'm I'm going to have to sort of make it right. And then, and then beyond that, I have two others outlined. That's fantastic. I've been this with Andy Andrew Kumasaka. His novel is all gone awry. Thank you for joining me, Andy. Well, I really appreciate it. And by the way, you can get it at all uh, all major booksellers. And uh, yeah, and and look, look at my um, website at andrewkumasaka.com. It's great. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much. I really appreciate this. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.